Hi, as we get started, could I just ask people to move down, please, just so that we can uh, don't have to run back up and down the stairs when we ask questions. So I'm going to start uh, start talking because I'm just very excited about this session. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's uh, it's really amazing to see all of you stick with this at four o'clock on a Friday. Uh, and I hope that this is actually also uh, very interesting. So let me just introduce myself. My name is Sridhar Venkatapuram. I uh, am an academic. I run a graduate program at King's College London called Global Health and Social Justice. And I'm also a trustee of MEDAC. Uh, and just so uh, incredibly happy and uh, excited to see so many of you here. So this session is, uh, is a, a very practical session and a very important session. It's about uh, addressing, uh, measuring, documenting impact of war and conflict on different kinds of domains, particularly around health. And so we have uh, three experts on that. And then we have something uh, also very interesting. So as you know, our two days are split between two things. One is that today is all about learning, and tomorrow is about action. Uh, and what we have done in this session today is that the first part is going to be about learning. And uh, there's going to be three speakers who give us information. And then we're going to have question and answer sessions for about 15 minutes. And then we're going to have a fourth speaker who is going to talk to you about citizen science, in which non-experts, non-trained experts, are uh, mobilizing themselves and organizing themselves in order to do what we would call scientific research. And so our hypothesis is, is that we can use that kind of knowledge in conflicts and in wars in which people who are involved in the wars and conflicts can actually play an instrumental role in documenting uh, the impact of conflict. So I'm not going to give you detailed biographies. As you know, all these are phenomenally experienced experts uh, and, and sort of esteemed individuals that, that have given their time today. So, the first person, the, so the three people are going to be Dr. Maria Kett. The second person will be Dr. Mina Fazel. The third person will be, is it Mr. Dr. Professor? Just Mr. Mr. Dr. Weir. And then the last person will be Professor Muki Hakle. Yes? So um, if that's all right, I'm just going to leave you with that and start with the first speaker. And uh, each, each of the first speakers will get 10 minutes, and then we'll do 15 minute questions, and then we'll do discussion after movie after that. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Let me see first if I can do the first challenge, which is get the PowerPoint to work. And no is the answer. Yes. Did it work? No? Yes. By some miracle it's happened. So, good afternoon everybody, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. My name is, as already been introduced, Maria. Um, I work in a centre that is um, based at University College London, but it's a, an interesting, it's a partnership between an NGO, which is Leonard Cheshire Disability, which is one of the UK's biggest disability charities, and um, a, an academic institution. So our work is very applied. We try to do very 
it's a practical research, so it's quite policy focused, and it tries to have a, a, an impact on the people who, who we are working for and with. And that, in this case, is people with disabilities. A lot of our work originally was much more focused on sort of immediate impacts of conflict. Um, more latterly, our research is focused on sort of longer term impacts. So I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of a disability 101 here. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that oftentimes when we talk about conflict, we assume we know a lot about disability because it's obvious, isn't it? People get disabled from conflict. But actually, what, what do we know and, and what do we need to know? So just to give you an idea of the scope and the scale of what we're talking about, according to the Women's Refugee Commission last year, an estimated 6.7 million persons with disabilities are forcibly displaced around the world as a result of conflict. I think the first thing to say from the outset is that one of the things I think we might have in common across this quite eclectic group is this issue around data. Although we think we can define and, and give numbers to disabilities, you might be surprised to know that actually we have very little hard evidence about how many people with disabilities there are in the world, full stop, let alone how many of those are affected by conflict or other emergencies. So this figure is based on the WHO um, estimate, which is 15% of the world's population have some form of um, impairment, which is of a long-term or chronic condition. I'll come back to that because the definition is important. But the point is, it's 15% of the world. That's not an insignificant number. It's about a billion people. Another point of note, and obviously conflict isn't the only cause of disability, but according to the World Health Organization, it will be the eighth most common cause of disability by 2020. It might surprise you to find it's not the most common cause. I think that's still road traffic accidents. But nevertheless, another fact is, according to the United Nations, and, and Mina might debate this, around 10% of any affected population, populations affected by conflict or humanitarian emergencies, go on to develop some sort of serious long-term psychological sequelae. So what we're talking about here is that disability covers a range of issues. It's not just what you might, the immediate things that come to your mind, seeing somebody with a, an amputation or stepping on a landmine or having a gunshot wound. We're talking about a spectrum of um, a range of impairments, ranging from gunshot wounds, armed conflict, direct impacts, to the less obvious, the uh, less visible, the, the long-term mental health impacts. But not only that, people who are born or have impairments as a result of not being able to access healthcare, not being able to access polio vaccinations during a lot, which is one of the biggest reasons of disability in Sierra Leone, wasn't the um, amputations that were occurring as a result of the conflict, it was the lack of access to polio vaccination campaigns for 10 years. So there was a massive rise in polio after the war in Sierra Leone. So we're talking about a huge range of issues here. So I think that's something to, when, when we think about disability, we often think about the immediate and the visible, but actually it's a much bigger and much more varied range of issues to think about. That isn't without challenges then, because obviously the, the immediate effect is, okay, so how do we intervene? What do, what do we need to do about this? But I want to come back to something a, a bit more sort of practical again here. One of the other issues that we touched upon a little bit this morning was around the issues between the links between poverty if you remember the session we had with Paul Rogers this morning, he talked about the um, hurricane that hit the Philippines a couple of years back. And he said about 6,000 people were killed, I think, if I remember correctly. But it's also important to remember that parts of the reason that so many people died or wounded was because they were poor and they were living in perilous and insecure environments. So a lot of this is around poverty. So people who are poor tend to be at higher risk of things like exclusion, <coughs> lack of access to healthcare and other services, lack of security, high risk of displacement discrimination, effects of children. So people with disabilities, a lot of these things are very attenuated for them because they are very marginalised from their communities 
in the first place. So these issues are really compounded during a conflict or a disaster and lead to a lot more exclusion and marginalisation. And I think it's also important to say that while we think about conflict as being a major cause of disability, it, it, it is, but it's not the only cause. As I say, poorer environments and poorer people are more disproportionately affected by disasters. We know from the research that our centre has done over the past 10 years that people with disabilities were very often the least visible and sustained disproportionately higher rates of mortality and morbidity. And part of the reason for this was just people didn't think to include them in their humanitarian programmes. This wasn't necessarily a deliberate exclusion, more of a, we don't see people with disabilities, so if we don't see them, they can't be there, rather than questioning why they weren't seeing them. People with disabilities can't often access the very emergency aid. If you think of the pictures you see in a conflict situation where they're having big trucks come in with huge bags of rice being thrown off the back, if you think about somebody with a physical impairment or somebody who's blind, these kind of delivery mechanisms are not accessible to people with all kinds of impairments. So very often, people with disabilities, if you're deaf, you don't know where to go to get information. So these, you know, it's often not an intentional mechanism of exclusion, but it, it is an exclusionary practice. That led to an increased vulnerability if your support structure is missing, if you are left on your own in, your, in a camp or in a tent situation, you are much more vulnerable to increased violence or other um, um, forms of abuse. And of course, another impact, if you already had a disability, but let's say you, had, uh, uh, you were blind and you used a white cane to, to mobilise, if you lose your white cane, you have a significantly different experience to be able to get around than if you still had your white cane. And that's just one of the many things that people lose in, in times of conflict or emergencies. So you, you, what, an existing impairment can become significantly worse during a conflict or emergency. And as you can see, these are all issues that, are, that can be really compounded. So over the last sort of decade or so, there have been some changes that have really tried to address this. And, and many of you might know that in um, 2008, the United Nations brought into being the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. We haven't talked much about human rights yet in, in this um, conference, but it's, it's the Ninth Human Rights Treaty, and it, it really isn't saying anything different in this Human Rights Treaty that anyone else enjoys in terms of access to their rights, or in theory would enjoy in terms of their access to their rights. But what it does say is it underlines that it's for persons with disabilities. So it was really trying to draw attention to the fact that actually Despite there were existing human rights conventions, persons with disabilities were often, again, not necessarily intentionally, but excluded from those human rights conventions. What's most interesting about the convention is, going back to the issue of data, the convention was very clever. It didn't try to define disability. And part of the reason for that is disability means different things in different contexts. It's culturally contextual. In different cultures, disability means different things. What, what I might consider to be a disability isn't necessarily what Mina might consider to be a disability. Different countries have different levels to do with um, welfare um, payments, to do with um, access to services. So disability is actually incredibly difficult to, to define. That comes back to the issue of having enough data. So I said at the beginning we had limited data about this. And part of the reason of that is because it, it is very difficult to define disability. And if you just ask somebody a straightforward question, do you have a disability, yes or no, actually that could be a very difficult question. People with mental health conditions may not wish to disclose that condition for reasons of discrimination or stigma. If you don't think that what you have as an, uh, an impairment is a disability, you may say no. So actually it gets a lot of false positive responses. So there's been a lot of work by the United Nations to try and improve how we define disability. And they very cleverly in the convention 
say it's the result of an interaction between an impairment, limiting or altering a person's capacity, capacities and the person's environment. So this is really interesting because it doesn't therefore say what the impairment is, although it does go on to say that it includes, but not limited to, long-term physical, mental, intellectual or sensory impairments. But the point is, it's the interaction with the environment. So actually, it, may, it means the, the issue or the thing that can be changed is the environment. You can't change. If a person's blind, you, you, it's difficult. You can't change that. You can't make a difference to the person's eyesight, but you can make a difference to the enabling factors around them and their environment that may enable them to enjoy their rights. So the convention was quite clever in how it didn't define disability per se. Obviously, if we're talking about an interaction between an impairment and the environment, we've seen the kinds of situations that we've already talked about today, Gaza, uh, floods in, in countries, earthquakes, that obviously causes structural changes in the physical environment, support networks, around poverty issues, also around knowledge. We know that no, we talked already about knowledge being power. If you don't have access to information, if you lose the access to information, that is a huge disabling factor. And also the political environment. Disability is often seen as a very apolitical topic. It's seen as quite neutral. But actually, some of the people with the loudest shouting voices are, for example, disabled ex-combatants. We've seen, if you think about the post-Vietnam War, one of the reasons why the, um, the um, disability movement in America became so vocal was because of the disabled ex-combatants returning from the Vietnam War. Other, of course, there are issues around compensation still ongoing around some of those issues, but it really was, it is a political issue. Um, it's also very important in this to highlight that there are already articles in the Convention specifically around humanitarian emergencies. And again, we talked earlier about international humanitarian law and international human rights law. This doesn't say anything different, it just underlines that the state has to take in accordance with their obligations under international law and international humanitarian law, international human rights law, all necessary measures to ensure the protection and safety of persons with disabilities in situations of risk, including armed conflict, humanitarian emergencies, and the occurrence of natural disasters. Great, as we've seen, it's good that international humanitarian law, but how does, that, how does it play out? What does this mean? What, what are the implications of this? But what it does mean is that anyone intervening in, in a humanitarian emergency or a conflict does have to take disability into consideration now, both in terms of the donors and the NGOs. So there have been a number of achievements in doing this and improving inclusion. The convention itself is certainly an achievement. I think in the decade or so that I've been working in this field, we can certainly say that disability inclusion, probably the fact that I'm even here is, is an indication of that. Disability issues have become much more um, higher up the, um, the um, agenda within the humanitarian sector, certainly within the UN system and donors. Disability um, has become a key issue. DFID, um, for those of you who, who don't know, the UK Government Department for International Development, um, last year released a disability framework where they made a very clear commitment to including disability in their humanitarian indicators. So it has to be sex, age and disability disaggregated data. So there is really a, a commitment to including disability across the, the DFID um, donor packages. There are many standards, guidelines and toolkits now for um, inclusion of disability within humanitarian programmes. So that should mean that people have no excuse why it doesn't happen. Um, much more training and awareness, much more rights-based language, and probably where it might be interesting to talk about um, uh, how we fit together is this idea about integrated assessments. Where is the um, area between mental health and disability, between other post-conflict areas and disability? Um, there are still a huge range of gaps, and perhaps that might be something to you to think about going forward for tomorrow. And I think that 
which does look like a big list, but I think it is important to, to come back to some of these things tomorrow, because one of the key areas is about the disabled people's organisations, coming back to the citizen science, people with disabilities themselves are often their own strong, are their strongest advocates. But actually, certainly when we've been talking about peace and health and post-conflict, um, you know, peace um, agreements, and people with disabilities haven't always been included in those discussions, and actually we could probably make much better use of those linkages and connections across um, disabled people's organisations and other advocacy organisations. Certainly increased visibility in forums and national meetings in the post-conflict, post-disaster phases. There still needs to be much better work about how to include groups with disability in participatory assessment processes. I think the humanitarian sector in general has got much better about um, collecting data and improving the mechanisms for data collection, but I think there is still some way to go about that. It will be interesting to hear about the citizens' participation. We still haven't got very good mechanisms to measure the impact of what we do. Um, even in the work in the fields I do, we, we can say that some of the humanitarian programmes they may increase numbers of people attending things, but whether that actually has an impact on their lives and changes anything in their lives, we still have very little data on. So we can, we can improve access and we can improve the numbers, but whether we know that really... And, and I don't think that's just for people with disabilities. I think in the humanitarian sector in general, the impact our interventions have is, is it's still hard to really measure that and how we define what, what do we mean, how do you define participation. We, some of the issues are quite difficult to define. Um, we also need to have much better disaggregated data, but we also need to use that data. We can collect data all we like, but if we don't do anything with it and interpret it and understand what it means, what the implications are for our programmes, then it's, it's pretty pointless. We need to build capacity of all actors to understand what an inclusive humanitarian programme looks like. I think the next one for me is really key, it probably underlines a lot of what other people have said. This idea of turning policies into practice, it's all very good, as somebody said, having these policies on paper, but how do you put them into process? Governments can be held accountable under the conventions if they have signed and ratified a human rights convention. Then there are national commissions in place to hold them accountable. So we need to be much stronger about holding countries accountable to what they've signed up for in conventions. Much stronger commitment from donors. And finally, I'm a researcher, so I have to say this, we really need to have more research about this understanding what works and what people really need and, and understanding that Disability is not one issue, it's a huge, diverse range of group of people and, and what all those issues mean. So that was a really quick read, Disability 101, so I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Talk a little bit about problems with research and then give an example of an intervention that I think is quite exciting the narrative exposure therapy, just to give a taste of some possible solutions to what we're dealing with. So, thinking about what impacts on mental health refugee populations, I think it's important to think about the pre migration, peri migration, and post migration factors. So, 
I think everyone here will have a good idea of what we're talking about and the press is helping us understand all these different <coughs> difficult areas. But actually we also need to think about them with regards to the individual, the family, the community and society. So the impacts are complex, they interplay and are numerous. And this is a slide that I think um, demonstrates, I think, really well the issues that are at play. So, there's someone who's exposed to armed conflict. Let me just see if that lines up. Um, they've also had kind of daily stresses that are unrelated to armed conflict, as well as stresses caused or worsened by armed conflict, as well as the exposure to armed conflict. So all these areas will impact on mental health. So when we're thinking about the mental health of these populations, it's not just that you know one incident of. Um, very you know, distressing witnessing or experiencing um, trauma, but just to think about the whole context. Because as we know, that determinants of mental illness are multifactorial. So you know, poverty impacts on it, family stresses impact on it. Um, and so when we're thinking about these populations, we need to think about solutions that embrace all of these areas. So what do we know about the prevalence of mental health, what, mental illness? Well, you know, it's no surprise that it's likely to be higher than the general population. Um, so from what we know, there are high levels of anxiety, PTSD, depression. There's considerable comorbidity, especially depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And that these conditions can be very chronic. So studies looking kind of over 12 years show that, you know, those that don't necessarily have any disorders at outset might have them five years later and not have them ten years later, but have them again four years later. So these are long-term um, impacts. And that actually we can't underestimate the impact of the post-migration setting, that if you know, these populations are deprived of stability, of um, the opportunity to care for themselves, that actually this enhances and increases their risk. And I'll just highlight one really important study, which looked at uh, Portland, Hassan and Gemma, which looked at 181 studies of refugees and showed that about 30% suffer from depression and PTSD. But obviously we know these populations are all so different, it's difficult to come up with one number. That, um, and the importance of parental mental health factors for children. So I'm particularly interested in children. I've been working with refugee children in the UK for over 10 years now. So the common kind of areas that we deal with are a whole range of responses to trauma. PTSD is only one of those. A whole range of grief reactions, other losses, and then all the difficulties of adjusting to new environments. A whole range of child protection concerns that come about with working with populations. Many threats of harm to self and others. And then uncomfortable minors who deal with a whole kind of increasing levels of the vast majority of these. So we did a big review a few years ago looking at the risk of protective factors in refugee, refugee children and I thought I'd just highlight a few aspects from this review. So thinking about individual factors of refugees coming, settled in low middle income settings where the vast majority of refugees are. Um, you know, basically there are factors for the individual, family, the community and society that kind of increases your risk. So if you don't feel connected to your neighbourhood environment, um, if you, it's unclear, for example, if you have a strong identity with other refugees compared to your host society. You know, we just, we just don't know. And because of time, I'm not going to go through the details of this, but you're happy to write to me and get these slides. 
Same with higher countries, we know quite a lot about what increases risk. Um, age, for example, family composition. So, you know, boys living with both parents had rates of psychological problems five times lower than those living in other family arrangements. So from these studies, we can get an idea of the importance of what we need to be doing in the post-migration environment to support. Now, just coming to the problems of research, I've got one slide here just to say the difficulties of working in this area. And I think there are five main problems. One is that much of the research is focused on victims of isolated catastrophic events, rather than people who've been exposed to multiple traumas and adversities over a long period of time. And we don't really know much about the complex interplay of that area. There's been a focus on post-traumatic stress disorder rather than the range of psychological distress. Um, it's unclear about the diagnostic validity of the vast majority of methods used. There are complex ethical and practical issues of conducting research with these populations, often in dangerous circumstances. And you know what is an appropriate representative sample of a Syrian refugee, for example, or any of these groups, we just don't know. So I'm going to end just talking a little bit about narrative exposure therapy, just to give an idea of a little bit of the interventions that are being tried for these groups. So I'm particularly interested in NET, as I'll call it. So it's a brief intervention for PTSD to be delivered in conflict areas. It's simple and effective. It can be provided by local people following a relatively short training. It can be made culturally applicable, and it really bears witness to human rights violations. That's someone conducting NET in one of the first trials in Northern Uganda. So the goals are to reduce PTSD symptoms, and you can't really right now, the only evidence base is around verbal exposure to the um, traumatic experiences. So you need to do that, but as well as doing that, um, constructing a documented narrative of that person's life and the most difficult aspects of it. So giving contextual information focusing on the trauma memories and enabling someone to give a testimony and bear witness. These are just um, a snapshot of some of the trials, just to show the importance of the evidence base that is very good. And I'll give you an example of a study. So Northern Uganda, trained lay counselors were recruited from the local population to give therapy to those suffering from PTSD. They were as good as trained mental health workers. They needed longer training, so uh, Someone with a mental background could be trained in two days, and these were trained in six weeks. Half of those needed to be treated themselves with PTSD, so that's what we need to be aware of using lay people within these contexts. But it's a sustainable way to give an intervention, and almost 70% of the people treated um, had remission compared to just over 30% in those in the control group. So it's well received by patients, little dropout, it's brief, it's focused. It reduces symptoms of PTSD, it has a human rights emphasis, and local therapists without a background can apply it effectively. So that's a very brief introduction to the, the kind of range of mental health problems that these populations can have, and an example of a potential intervention as well. Thank you. The mouse has just walked off. The mouse has just walked off. Um, 
before, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, the old days used to have to control it. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yes, but try imagine it here. Okay, I'll give up now. It's really difficult to do. You can't. It doesn't. Oh, there's something there. Oh, there, 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 there. You're there, you're there, you're there. Just there. Yeah, just take the. Yeah, that's it. It's back to you. Yeah, it's one of the best things I've done in my life. I'm an assistant manager before I was a PhD student. That's why he's doing 50.5. Nice one. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, quickly about conflicts in the environment. And it's nice to talk quite quickly because it's a massively broad topic. So I should be terribly indulgent and not uh, bore you with too many gory details. Um, we set up a project uh, about three years ago together with the Dutch NGO PAX. We were quite interested in looking at the humanitarian impact of wartime environmental damage and what we could see was there's a growing political interest in trying to do something to strengthen wartime protection and also improve how we respond after conflicts. So we wanted to look at the humanitarian environmental impact of damage and in doing so we try and encourage civil society partners from a range of fields including public health, by the way, um, to try and contribute and work with us to try and change the developing international debate about how we strengthen protection. Uh, so earlier this year we actually launched a new NGO network with some of the uh, grizzled veterans from the landmines and cluster munition and chemical weapons campaigns, uh, fancy new website and uh, Twitter handle, so please come and visit. Um, yeah, so we started off looking, thinking, well, we've seen now about explosive remnants of war, but what about environmental pollutants caused by conflict, so toxic remnants of war. So not things like chemical weapons, which are intentionally toxic, but kind of everything else which pollutes the environment. We'd worked for years on depleted uranium, but we were very, very obvious there were lots of other things other than depleted uranium which polluted the environment and put uh, civilians at risk. So we knocked up a little definition and started looking at different sources of uh, pollution during conflict. And here's some of them in fancy icon form. So obviously there's lots of stuff that happens before conflict. More than 90% of weapons are never used in conflict. They're used in testing and training or they're just disposed of when they reach the end of their shelf lives. Obviously weapon production facilities as well. But then looking at the conflict phase, you've got the use of weapons themselves. So not just the well-known things like depleted uranium, but also most explosives are toxic to some degree. No one can really tell you how much is going to be left in the environment after the intense use of artillery, for example, somewhere like Gaza. Also looking at stockpile blasts, where you may have a very intense focus of, con of contamination after these huge storage sites explode. Military herbicides like Agent Orange, emissions from military bases, uh, building rubble and waste from somewhere. Somewhere like Gaza, you've got over 3 million tonnes. Uh, my colleagues in the audience will doubtless correct me in a moment. Um, but yeah, huge amounts of rubble. What does it contain? It's potentially an irritant to the lung. It has trace metals in it, asbestos, other bits and pieces. Is anyone really monitoring this stuff? Should there be? How are we dealing with it? What do you do with it after a conflict? Um, also looking at military waste disposal, burn pits, which have been very problematic for US military personnel and contractors. Looking at how you dispose of weapons, looking at the stuff that gets left behind. Huge amounts of toxic stuff. But also looking at really 
bad environmental policies when it comes to military behaviour, so deliberate bombing of industrial sites or oil facilities, and not only the direct pollution that can cause, but the indirect effects that can cause. And then looking at some of the conditions associated with conflict, so collapsing environmental governance in post-conflict or conflict states, lack of capacity to actually measure the environment and identify environmental problems, and lack of basic environmental services like waste management and processing. So one of the problems we found is that uh, there's not enough being done to identify environmental problems during conflicts, after conflicts. This is an extremely long quote, which I won't read out, but you can please read it over my shoulder. Um, so I say, the UN Environment Programme, they do post-conflict assessments. They're really good, but they only give you the information as a snapshot, um, usually some months or years after the conflict. They can't do them in all conflicts. They're not going to get into Syria for a while. They were invited in by Libya, but the international community didn't want to pay for an assessment, so we still don't know about what environmental damage has been caused by the disruption to Libya's oil industry, for example. Huge problems about data collection, um, which we're going to come on to in a moment. And we're just not monitoring this stuff enough. And if we're not monitoring it, then how can we sustain political interest in it? One recent example is Ukraine, where there were some quite unusual circumstances which led to us being able to identify quite a lot of problems during the conflict itself. Ukraine is a really bad place, is a really bad place to have a conflict from an environmental perspective. It's a heavily industrialised region. There's a big list of things there which are potentially environmentally problematic, not least of which are the 10 billion tonnes of industrial waste which are piled up in the Donbass region. We were working with an NGO in Switzerland who just happened to have done an environmental study in the area on the impact of the coal industry and industry over the years, and they happened to have connections with NGOs on the ground. They were able to monitor and record incidents of damage, like deliberate target of industrial facilities, uh, forest fires, related to problems like that. They managed to get a little bit of their sampling data from official government sources, but they soon were knocked out. Problem is that Ukraine now has a really damaged environment within the Donbass region. Two years of urgent environmental assistance is estimated to cost about 30 million US dollars. Not sure where the money's coming from on that. So some of the challenges and possible solutions, so obviously access to the field is a problem. Is there some way that communities, NGOs working on the ground can start recording environmental data? Politicisation and neutrality in these circumstances, how can you ensure that your work is transparent? How can you verify what people are saying? The cost of analysis and equipment, I think this is why citizen science has done quite well in the environmental field, because a lot of the analytical equipment is very expensive. Can you create low-cost, simple-to-use equipment that can be used by communities or citizens? Environmental expertise in relation to that. How can you train up people to be able to use some of this stuff in a post-conflict setting? Then what do you do with the data, and then how do you communicate the risks that you may have identified in a responsible way as part of post-conflict health or assistance programs? And finally, why is it a good time? Um, <coughs> This is a completely unscientific diagram that we put together, which shows some of the state positions in a debate which is going on at the moment, in fact went on this week, about uh, increasing protection of the environment under international humanitarian law. At the moment, the protection is incredibly weak, and there are a number of states at that end who are quite keen on doing some stuff. There's some others who are less so, and who may be familiar to you from other conflicts around the world. Um, but yeah, so there's some stuff going on. So we've been having a think about what would it actually look like if you had a stronger system of environmental protection. And this diagram kind of shows what it might be like if you're assisting communities, assisting the environment, you have a financial mechanism in place, but how do you inform any work you do in assisting the environment? You need to have a really robust monitoring body in place. So part of the work we're looking at is how can you 
not only get data now to try and create and sustain a political process that strengthen protection of the environment and assist affected communities, but what role would monitoring have in the future if you were able to achieve something like that? Uh, briefly, in summary, um, yeah, wartime environmental damage threatens public health, livelihoods. Um, improving how we record data now could be very useful politically. Uh, data collection is completely underdeveloped and it's an area where communities, activists and NGOs may well be able to play a role. Um, not only are there humanitarian and environmental imperatives, but there's a clear political ones at the moment for improving collection. And uh, it's probably going to be quite tricky, but I hope Nuki's got some really good ideas. Uh, thank you. So thank you very much for, uh, for each of those really quick, and I know that it's probably one of the most painful things to do is to summarize things into five minutes or ten minutes. Uh, but I can't, um, I can't sort of but, but say how important and crucial this topic is about measuring the impact of conflict. We usually have just very crude data about mortality or some sort of numbers of migration. Um, but the idea is that, you know, how do we uh, actually measure the impact not only on these domains that we're talking about, disability, mental health, and the environment, if you think about all the other kinds of vulnerable groups in society that suddenly are affected by conflict. So for example, uh, the elderly, uh, in terms of how do we measure what's happening to them as a result of conflict, we need to know the data. If you want to think about uh, sexual minorities, gay and lesbian, transgender individuals that has become more recent, in conflict and what happens when the food truck comes or the ration truck comes and how the other people are treating them, we need data, uh, and how do we measure that? So these are really, uh, not only in these three domains, but in any number of domains, this is really important. Uh, the kind of public health geek in me is sort of like very like, wow, this is, this is incredibly crucial that some sort of skills can actually be uh, quite crucial and life-saving uh, this stuff. But before I sort of ramble, what, what questions do you have for these individuals? So many. You can't ask questions in the back row because I told you to move down. <laughs> Anyone in the front? In the <laughs> We've got a question in the back. Yeah, right there. Is this the back? Yeah. No, no, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> that definitions here. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. Oh no, oh no, oh no. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. Um, it's a question for Doug, and it, it's a bit naive, but one of my hopes in coming along this weekend was that somebody would be talking about war and carbon dioxide emissions. Um, it seems to me that that's an area that hasn't received enough attention. It might shine a spotlight on all kinds of issues. Would you consider that as a toxic manifestation of war? Um. You're not the first person to raise this. Um, <laughs> uh, the US's military's carbon emissions are absolutely massive, and um, the US has actually been doing some stuff to reduce them, but it's a drop in the ocean. As far as we're concerned, we're trying to look at more uh, direct impacts on public health. Um, so carbon dioxide and carbon emissions in the context of military operations are a little bit outside. Um, but it will be an issue, and it should be an issue for the climate talks in Paris, but the 
general trend from environmental regulations is that the military tend to be exempted from them. For example, the Mercury Convention, which was passed a few years ago, has a blanket exemption for any use of mercury in military equipment. Just so happens you need mercury for night vision goggles, which is why the DOD were very keen for the Mercury Convention not to cover military stuff. And it's similar with the European chemicals legislation under REACH, that there are military exemptions under REACH. So whatever may come from climate talks, you can probably bet your bottom dollar that it won't cover military emissions, and it probably should, because they're very large. Is there anywhere that information is available? Uh, yeah, I've seen a few US articles. Um, give us a shout and I'll point you in the direction of one. There's a, okay. And can I just, just before, who else had questions? One, two, okay. So here on this side, good. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, my question was for Mina, actually. And um, I was wondering, there's a lot of criticism um, leveled at the PTSD diagnosis. And I wonder, with the results that you reported from the NET kind of process, how does that work? Or how, how does that take on some of the criticisms of PTSD? Um, the NET studies have been done for a group of people who have been diagnosed with PTSD according to certain diagnostic criteria that are quite simple. So with regards to how that lies with NET, NET has decided to accept that PTSD is a disorder that's a proportion of people, you know, that, that is an extreme um, response to experiencing life-threatening traumatic events and treat those within that. So, so NET has been very clear about that. And I think, um, you know, this, this area has, you know, this, this debate about PTSD has been riddling the area for so long. I, I'm um, quite difficult to get too interested in it, but I will, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> because I think, it, I think in clinical practice, what we see is that there are a range of responses to experiencing, witnessing whatever traumatic events. And, um, what I think the important thing is when it starts impacting on your functional, on your functioning. So if your experience means that you find it difficult to go out of the house or set foot in a car or parent your children, then you're entering an area where I think um, we need to find ways to intervene for this group. And they right now are coming under this thing called PTSD, and, and it, it is a dirty diagnostic category. There's a lot of debate about it, but in clinical practice there are a group whose functioning is impaired and I think these treatments have made a dramatic improvement for that group and that's the group I'm interested in. Did, you, did anyone else have anything? Yeah. If we could do the front row, Kristen. Hello, I'm Susanne Vestukian from Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh, um, where I work with a lot of colleagues who are engaged in psychosocial interventions, so engaged in the debate about PTSD, and, and in a sense, as you say, there's a, there's a, a very vibrant debate, and, and, and in a sense, the, 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 the spectrum, I suppose, that, that you, people will encounter in the field. Um, but I think it's very much this kind of idea that I think 
Maria put up initially, that there are many, many different reasons why people are engaged in um, looking at interventions and how people who may have experienced trauma have different reasons and different ways of, of coping and, and how we understand what that coping mechanisms are. So I think just to say that there is a very, um, a very good network called the Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Network, MHPSS network, which calls on um, people engaged in this area of work um, worldwide, comes together to share their experiences both within conflict and then post-conflict. And they work very actively in, in kind of newly uh, live situations such as um, um, you know, recent experiences in, in the Philippines, etc. Mayan will pull together people who are working actively in, in the psychosocial area um, to exchange what could be done um, on the ground using what resources there are. So I think that's really you know, great that people are keen to kind of pull together and say, let's share our, our experiences and our approaches across um, different fields. So I think anyone who is interested in this field, that's it's a very powerful network to look, get up again on the web, MHPSS um, network. But I just wanted to also ask Doug about um, a previous um, student who studies on our also global health masters, um, who was working with humanitarian agencies, did a really interesting study looking at the level of medical waste and the kind of left, uh, the, you know, saying to what extent are some of the larger humanitarian interventions also creating uh, toxic, leaving behind toxic or, or at least um, 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 highly harmful medical waste that what processes do we need to take into account as humanitarians? So I don't know if you want to add that to your list, but it did seem when she came back and reported, in a sense, the level of, of um, waste and the, and the lack of attention to protocol that sometimes should be in, in, should be followed that isn't needs to be also kind of constantly reminded. People need to be reminded that this is really important as, as well. Yeah, no, there's a huge issue in Bosnia with out-of-date medicines which were being dumped years and years ago. Um, we were at an event this year um, with uh, Office of Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs, bringing together UNEP and them. So there's, there is a debate at the moment and a discussion between humanitarians and the environmentalists about, um, for example, the placing of refugee camps and ensuring that they don't cause significant environmental harm through collection of firewood or water pollution contamination. Um, and I think, I guess with large humanitarian operations, it's similar to some of the military operations where you have very large private military security contractors providing logistics and basing operations and the environmental footprint of them is also enormous and it's somewhere else where these environmental issues aren't necessarily being looked at because no one's really monitoring it properly uh, and the guidelines particularly around private military security contractors are pretty much non-existent at the moment, So, which is why you've ended up with burn pits in the US. But I guess the humanitarian side probably aren't quite that bad. Currently, I'm generating quite as much waste, but as you say, it's also a similar problem which needs to be looked at, and it's starting to be looked at at the moment. So. I'll, I'll just shout. Um, I'd like to hear more about the NET, um, what the process is, and why you think it's so effective. Um, so, very simply, it's um, thinking that when you experience a very traumatic event, your, um, your encoding of that memory becomes a little bit um, primitive in a way. So it goes into a part of your brain, but it, we call it a hot memory. So it's put in the amygdala where, you know, it's just, you know, quite, it's related to all your kind of 
bodily functions and flashbacks and all of these things. So the encoding of a very traumatic memory doesn't take place in the same way that the encoding of your ordinary everyday memory takes place. And therefore, the result of that is you don't, you're not able to control that memory that well. So therefore, you get flashbacks or nightmares or feel that you can't control the memory of it. Hence, you start to then avoid anything that might potentially precipitate that memory. And what NET does is just try and, um, through a process of a very detailed narrative, using a principle of flooding almost, try and move that memory from a hot memory, which is poorly encoded, into what we call a cold memory, where you, you, have, you feel you have full control over it. So it doesn't take the pain of the memory away, but you remember the details in clarity. It's written down. Um, and therefore then, you're less likely to experience the flashbacks, the insomnia, all of those more debilitating symptoms that come about from a poorly encoded memory which, you know, if you're avoiding, if it's painful, if it's difficult, you can understand it. And so what the treatment does is just take that memory that's fragmented, out of control, and bring it into a place that it's very clear, it's chronological, and you feel more in control of. And, and that doesn't do what CBT does, which is think about meanings. Uh, it just assumes that once you've got an understanding of the memory, you yourself will be able to then attribute the meanings to it. So it doesn't go into that detailed work at all. It's quite a simple kind of just narrative-based story. Uh, fascinating. So um, we have one more speaker. So I need to get to that one speaker. If, um, if we could hold off on the remaining questions, because we are going to have questions again. If I could ask you guys to sit, hold tight, if that's OK, unless you really desperately want to get off. Um, so. Uh, our fourth speaker is going to present, and then we're going to have question and answers. Yeah. Okay. But you're the expert. You already know how that works. So, hello. Uh, I'm Muki Hakai. I'm a QCL in the Extreme Citizen Science Group. And I'll try to explain to you first of all what citizen science is, so I can explain to you what Extreme Citizen Science uh, is about. And thank you for the invitation. I hope that this will fit into the general framework and anytime find it useful. So let's start with what, what is citizen science. It's, it's a term that emerged in the past 10 years, and uh, last summer, finally, the Oxford English Dictionary gave it their legitimacy, and it continued to flourish. Um, it's basically engaging people from all walks of life in a scientific project. And some of, some of the things that relate to it have been going on forever, with people reporting about ecological observations, or doing things in their backyard and being involved in water monitoring or reporting weather and things like that. But things have changed and you can find other talks. I'm not going to cover all the trends. Uh, usually people notice the technological trends, the fact that people got mobile phone, internet, uh, web technologies and things like that, that people associate with citizen science 
my view is that that's the wrong end of the stick, it's actually societal changes that led to what we are seeing in citizen science. So the fact that we have now, when you look at the statistics worldwide, about a billion people that finish tertiary education, and those are people with much more potential, you have things like what's called the Flynn effect, the shift in IQ across the past hundred years, all sorts of indication that actually there are societal changes that, that enable this phenomenon, and we're not talking about the same level of education of people, um, say, a hundred years ago. And you have these people, and you find them all over the place. You, you can find them many times you know, in refugee camps and other places where people are very highly educated and can do things, are frustrated because of the situation they are in. So that's what citizen science is, and you can find it, and a lot of it is focusing too much on uh, asking people to do data collection. And that's, again, in my view, and you can find it somewhere else, I can point you if you're interested. Uh, a remnant from the uh, 19th and 20th century, where you couldn't expect people from outside academia to be able to follow protocols and to understand what a scientific process is about. So you would, all you could expect them to do is to ask them, please identify a bird, tell me what it is, I'll do the rest of the work, you can't do the analysis. Whereas today, people, and we see it in different projects, people are interested in doing a lot of work and are capable in doing things. So that's where this concept of extreme citizen science comes in, where we are trying to allow any community, regardless of literacy, uh, to design their own citizen science project, to decide what is the problem, to decide exactly the detail of the protocol, to decide exactly what will be collected, and then to use the information and analyze it. And so a lot of our work is bottom-up and community-led activities, and I'll show you now some examples of that. So, for example, a lot of the work that we're doing and where I started from was about participatory mapping, where communities start with the mapping and make sure that we understand what are the issues and then exploring exactly what needs to be mapped or which issue should be explored. And the map is being used as an evidence base to demonstrate exact things and then you can use it in different ways. Around a decade ago, and that's where the technological change do come in, things like OpenStreetMap, which is a global wiki of maps. Basically, anyone with the technical skills can take a GPS, go around an area, collect the data, and then start building up a map, and that's an early version if you go to the website you'll see a much more sophisticated map, and it today includes over 2 million people. Many of them haven't done much work, but within that, about 30% have contributed significantly. And they do things like, in early on, again, they invented things like mapping party, where people come together in a pub, and you can see, for example, one of the first ones, where they started with the image that you see there on the top of that, and at the end of the uh, weekend, after one day when, when everyone was mapping it, they were ending up with a much more detailed map. And if you go around and you look at a project that is currently led by MSF and the British Red Cross, and which is called Missing Maps, they are going around and doing this type of mapping parties where people are contributing to OpenStreetMap and creating remotely 
uh, maps that can be used, for example, we're dealing with Ebola and we're dealing with other emergencies around the world. So that's one form of very direct citizen science where you can involve even people remotely. People can sit here in London and help mapping because they heard about something and act in humanitarian help. It does require people on the ground because street names and landmarks and other things require the local knowledge. So either you find expats that, that can help in the process, and there was a demonstration of that in Haiti, but you can also have people on the ground helping with that. There are also more interestingly all sorts of techniques that, that emerged over the past decade that allow communities to do the mapping themselves. So out of the um, Gulf of Mexico um, oil spill, um, there came out this public laboratory of open technology and science, which developed all sorts of really cost, really low cost tools that can be used in order to map things. So here's two examples of that. At the bottom you see balloon mapping. It's a balloon that filled with helium. Uh, attached to it is a very cheap camera. The camera is being flown over an area. At the end of the process there is a fairly simple software that then you can stitch all the images and see the connection of it. And then uh, at the other top you can also see the uh, image of a kite. So if you've got wind, use a kite. If you don't have wind, you can use a balloon. Um, and now there are more use of drones, but still that thing is cheaper than drones and people feel that they are empowered by collecting the data themselves. The image from the center is an example from Jerusalem where a, a major road is passing through a Palestinian village and the people from the village collected the image in order to make their claim of the land and, and the influence of what happened to them. That's from the work of Chagit uh, Kaysar in Jerusalem. In London, for example, we also had a community around the world docks where they were concerned with the noise from the local airport and plans for increasing the size of it. So we went to Mapling, got noise meter, decided with them the protocol and collected the data. Later on, that evolved through a European project into an app that allowed people to download the app on the phone and use it to record information. And we had over 500 people in the area around Heathrow collecting information and then presenting a common map to the uh, airport commission. In another part of uh, South London, in the Pipsa State in Deptford, noise mapping led to questions about air quality. Some of the techniques are really simple, so you can have a uh, this simple eco badge for ozone, where you expose it for an hour, eight hours, change the color, you know what the situation is, and we can think about different uh, reaction and, and devices like that that really anyone can use to get people engaged. Further on, we then moved into other activities. So what you are seeing there is air quality monitoring also, where people take white sampling. So it's a simple white the working area, then I put it in an envelope, you take it to the lab, you analyze it, and you find heavy metals and other information from it. You can do it all the time, or you see the image on the top is a person putting a diffusion tube. So within the next week, we are launching a crowdfunding campaign about uh, offering communities to work with us and to install diffusion tube. They will get 10 diffusion tubes to their area with instruction, the instructions are basically get a stack ladder, be careful not to fall, 
Strapi, send it back to us after a month, and we'll put together produce an app. And, and that in our communities, through all these kind of techniques, and notice that I'm talking here about techniques that have been around since the 70s, and what happened is that first of all, many more people are capable of doing that, but also because of process innovation and the simplicity of chemical analysis that, that evolved over the year, we can now offer them to many more people. So the cost of this diffusion tube now, with all the process of sending it and everything else, is less than 12 pounds, and that allows you to use quite a lot of that. Um, but there is also a need to develop tools, so for example, we got a tool called Sapelli, which is a tool for non-literate uh, users. Uh, it was developed after a request from the Pygmy hunter-gatherers uh, that Jerome Lewis, the anthropologist that is the co-director of the group, has developed. And what you see there in the image is an illegal, anti-illegal poaching application where the group the tribe asked Jerome to create an app for them so they can record abuses and location of illegal poaching camps. And the application is created through an icon-based interface that is designed in a participatory way. So working through the process and deciding what the icons mean and what exactly the meaning of each bit of information is done together with the community. Uh, we can also attach an audio, so if you hold and press an image, you can hear it, and we are developing other methods to ensure that non-literate users can also collect data with very high accuracy. And we already seeing that the level of, of data collection can be very good. And the last bit, and kind of following the discussion, so that's where the presentation ends, but I'll also, if we go to the web browser, yeah, I'll just, uh, hopefully I can show you another thing that, that fits into the, the other discussion. Um, so to say that this work can work in, um, in different situations and in post-conflict situations, there is one example that I know of, which I'm now quite far, just sorry. Yeah, okay. So we can just pass it back to, to the other screen. So if you go to Save the Children website and you look for Lee Esterhuizen and the resource, and Lee is, I won't say, she's a friend of mine and we're working together in research on social enterprise and other things, but she's a social science researcher who worked with Save the Children and done a children lab research where the children are actually acting as citizen scientists. So this whole area of citizen science is possible in refugee camps with children about their stories. So in this case, it was about their personal stories and the things that are experiences. And if it's possible to do at that level, surely we can work out with many other levels. So that was the final point that kind of matched the other discussion. And thank you very much. So thank you very much for that. I mean, I think that that uh, is a really interesting uh, dimension to what we are trying to present today. So um, I'll give a little speech at the end, but before, before that, can I, should we move on to questions? 
So you can, you can ask questions about any of the earlier presentations or about the most immediate. You had a, did you finish your question? You have a question still. Okay. You have a question. Any more? Okay, so there's a second question here as well. Okay, good. Hi, I'm Bella. I'm a postgraduate student in the Global Health and Development course at UCL. My question is for Maria. Considering the figure that you brought up, one billion people being affected by a disability, I was wondering if you could shed some light onto why it wasn't addressed as its own goal in the SDGs, <laughs> and what kind of effort it would have taken to address it directly instead of under the other goals. Uh, that's a, a, a good question, <laughs> and a huge question. Um, but, so I guess everyone knows about the Sustainable Development Goals. The, I think there was an idea that there should be a disability-specific goal, purely because if you look across the Millennium Development Goals, where there were not targets weren't being reached, one of the strongest arguments was it was particularly for things around access to education, that children with disabilities were often amongst the hardest to reach groups. So of the however many million of children still out of school, a significant portion of those were children with disabilities. So the argument was to try and have a specific goal. But I think the flip side of that was to mainstream disability inclusion across all of the goals. So as it stands now, I think that the next battle <laughs> is to really try and um, have disability included in the indicators, which, which wasn't the case in the MDG. So I think that though they're not specifically mentioned in the actual goals, it will be in the, in the indicators, and, and it is in the target, certainly in at least one of them. So it's a very good question, and, and the idea is that it will be. I think the disability community feels it wasn't as, um, hasn't been as strongly addressed as they'd hoped, but there's still a lot of, I mean, it's a very live, it's a hot debate, I think, still at this current moment about how those indicators and, and targets will be, what they will look like. So it's, a, it's a, an ongoing debate, but it's a very good question, and we tried. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, my name is Maha, I'm a post, uh, uh, postgraduate student at Kings. Um, basically, my question goes to Dr. Mio uh, about the refugees. Um, you mentioned that the refugees normally go through phases of uh, pre, pre, and post uh, migration uh, dilemma. So, um, I want to know, like, what's basic? What are basically the organizations that you you're collaborating with in, uh, to conduct this whole research? Uh, and the, the therapy and the services that you're providing to, to refugees and uh, whether there is any form of uh, work on the advocacy level uh, so that more people would likely to, to enter uh, the EU and uh, the UK as Thank you. Um, so I personally am mainly a UK-based researcher. So I'm really interested in the post-migration environment and how dramatically we still fail on assisting any <laughs> aspect of mental delivery. So the organisation, so, so I think with the, with the UK hat on, you know, we're just working a lot with just local mental health commissioners, you know, so just making this mainstream part of clinical care. I know in London there are some specific NHS trauma treatment centres, you know, that I think do a lot, but I don't work a lot with the kind of, I'm just a very NHS-based person, so not the best person to answer the questions with regards to all the other things. I think, though, we have to be very clear about our advocacy role. I don't, I think it's an essential aspect of the work that we as I do as a physician anyway. 
but um, I, I need to raise awareness on every level possible of the injustices that are taking place. And specifically in the UK context, that's around immigration detention centres. You know, that actually there are a lot of organisations across the country that are supporting this unbelievable human rights abuse that's taking place in the UK. And so I think, you know, in that regard, I think there's plenty locally that is unbelievably disturbing, let alone globally. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I invite all of you to just join me and you know, everyone else in just doing what we can and taking every opportunity to do that. But there are lots of organisations, but I'm not the best person, sorry. Maybe just to follow up on that, the UK, the um, Disability Commission, the UK Disability Commission, linked to our signatory on the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, has, has been investigating the UK for our um, mental health treatment of people with mental health conditions because we don't necessarily um, aren't at the same standard that might be expected for a signatory country. So that, that is something that is being uh, currently investigated by the UK Commission. So that might. I don't know what it will result in or how it will end up, but, that, but it, it is something they are looking into. So. We have a couple of questions here. So there's two, one there and one there. Hiya, I'm Gillian Creasy from Sheffield. Um, this question about the extreme citizen scientists. Um, I just wonder if you've got any examples or ideas about what next you know i've got the idea about collecting a lot of data and the power of having people on the spot who are you know interested for themselves and their community to collect that data and put it together i've been involved in um, putting diffusion tubes in my local area in sheffield but then what next you know how do you make that data count with people who do something like the people driving the cars through our area Thank you very much. So I've just kind of picked up within that a few examples of demonstration. There, again, previous talks, and you can find some of them on the web, with fuller descriptions of different stories and how it works. The actual story of the air quality is one that we're especially pleased with because we, we link things to action. So, so we are very clearly in the activities talking about participatory action research. That's the, the title of the, of the area of research and the research approach that we are taking. Where from the start we're doing two things. First of all, we talk about expectations. So it's always to, to have the right expectation about what the data collection is capable of doing and the association with, say, UCL, with a research university can provide and what it can't provide and to what degree it's possible to to influence different processes, but then to decide how to do the work in such way that it can be used in different processes. So in the case of the air quality, um, for example, we've seen a case of working in Putney where we use the information from the diffusion tubes because they are, we are doing that so we match the day when we start with the day when the local authority starts so they can compare it in the same way. What I didn't mention is that the, the practice, for example, of local authorities is to put one diffusion tube per street. That's kind of the standard since the 70s. And the sort of process innovation that we introduced because of the reduction in cost is to create a grid of them in about 50 meters between them over several streets. 
And that kind of mapping, which uh, you, I, I, it's possible to see online now when it's shared online, um, is allowing people to do all kinds of activities. So in the case of Patni, people took this information to TFL and talked with them, and TFL changed to retrofitted buses. I always add the bracket that I wonder where TFL took the buses that they moved from Patni. <laughs> Um, in uh, Deptford, where I've shown you, there was a clear demonstration that lorries were getting into a local scrapyard, are uh, standing and rubbing the engines, so that's something that they kind of changed the, the regulations to encourage them to switch off the engines, and also they've put in a, a monitoring station in the area, there wasn't enough realization of the impact of it, uh, we had another case of substrons using very similar methods and promoting uh, healthier routes. We've just finished a set of 10 communities in London. Uh, one of them, for example, made the decision about the route to school and which route you should go with the children towards school and encourage people to use it. So there are kind of personal level interaction. There are a community level and it's working through those in a very realistic way. One thing that we do emphasize that on many of the things politically and scientifically we're actually at the same level as the communities. So me putting a diffusion tube or a community member putting a diffusion tube doesn't make a difference because I'm not an atmospheric air pollution scientist. So my ability to say things about it it's a process of shared learning. We learn about it, they learn about it together. Uh, the same thing about the, the noise monitoring. Because in the case of the PIPS estate, again, we had that discussed with the, um, with the environment agency, and then they brought their own acoustician, and that led to change of the uh, licensing of the scrapyard. So there are more and more examples of that. But if you put it, the, the short, Think about it is that if you put it within a framework like participatory action research, where you're not just saying this data, but you think this is data that will be used. What is actionable data within this given situation? What the data that will help people to do something with it, not just collect in the data for the sake of knowing what it is? Then you are starting to move into something that is actionable. There's a question back. Hello, my name is Tessie, I'm from Imperial College of London. Um, my question is centred around mental health um, and the fact that a lot of uh, migrants who you know, travel towards that areas seek a better life and obviously the stresses they have uh, made multiple prior to a conflict or um, situations like that. Um, my question is, you know, um, to, to me, though, what are your views around interventions um, that focus around integrating people who have migrated um, so that they are they have access to better services etc and um, having inter interventions that focus on integration to alleviate any mental health problems that may you know be exacerbated further if they if they don't i think it's yeah no it's a very good question i think it's essential you know what the problem is is that we don't really understand what integration mean so we haven't studied it well enough it's a social you know it's the social scientists helping us learn you know what that means so 
You know, my, the examples I can draw on are from children at schools that I've interviewed in detail. And, you know, it's very, very clear that, you know, the young people... Um, I did this thing called a moment of change. You know, what, th th was there a moment where things changed for you? And, um, you know, I was expecting it to be the day you got your refugee status or whatever. You know, none of them said that. It was the day that, you know, a local kid in the school you know, laughed with them and invited them round to their home or something like that. So it's, it's, we cannot <laughs> underestimate the importance of integration, but what does that actually mean in practice? That's really a community, you know, it's, it's focusing community, what, you know, what does that mean in a school? Like the vast majority of young people I interviewed in schools, um, none of them had ever set foot in the home of a native English person. So they might have loads of English language classes, and lots of therapeutic groups potentially set up, but actually what, what every young person wants is just to be normal, whatever that means in that environment. And so I spend a lot of time working with schools to think, you know, are there natural ways that the school environment can support children integrating with the local? So I think it's essential. Um, if you speak to people, that's what they want. And actually, interestingly, a lot of the young people said, you know, it was when they felt they'd integrated that they were then able to seek the mental health support that they knew they needed for some of the experiences they had. But actually, you know, until they had that, they weren't then able to actually start recovering in other areas as well. So it's important, it's a great area for us to think about and work on and research because we don't quite yet understand what it means. Thank, thank you very much for all your contribution. I found that really, really interesting. Thank you. But going through in my mind is a, is a, a general question at this stage of, of the day. It's a, it's a somewhat provocative question, I think, and it, it's this. Seeing, seeing as the World Health Organization defines health in the most general terms, is there a danger that if we look at the the disabling effects, the, the toxic effects, the, the individual psychological effects. We're missing, we're missing the big effect on human health, which is what war does to the human spirit, what war does collectively to, to nations and groups, whether that is leaving, leaving a group with a collective sense of <coughs> that revenge is necessary in the future, or as in Britain, I think, a collective sense that war is in some sense glorious, as we see every year, in, in my opinion, with the Armistice Day, a, a, glor a glorifying of, of war. Um, so is there, is, there, is there a danger that if, if, we're looking at, if we're looking at these individual things, the disabling, the toxic, the, the individual effects, we're missing, we're missing the big picture, or to put, put my question another way, do you are, you, are you suggesting that in a sense we can clean up war? We can do war less messily, less toxically, with less individual uh, effects on people's mental health? Or are you saying that war is so toxic, so disabling, so messy, that we must be against war? We can't clean it up. <laughs> right to start. So, can, can, I, can I take that question? Yeah. Do. Let me take that question. So, I think, um, fantastic. I think that that's a, um, that's a really important question, and it actually 
gives us something to think about. So the panel, the aim of this panel was to talk about measuring the impact of war. Uh, and if I understand you correctly, your question is, by talking about the measuring, measurement of the impact of war on the individual or local level, are we actually somehow complicit in this, in this idea of war? Uh, and actually, should we be not actually talking about how war categorically is a bad thing? Uh, and I think that that's a fantastic question. Um, so, how do we deal with that? One is that, I mean, this is the Quaker meeting house. I think that's perfect. Uh, we, should, we should sit all together and collectively think about that. And I think that that's worthwhile doing. And um, in no way does the, so I used to work at a human rights organization. And my entire job was to retrospectively document all the horrible things that people had experienced. That in no way stopped me from saying the entire thing that they experienced is bad. But the, the, the process of documentation serves a number of purposes. It can be a healing effect on the community. It can be an instrumental thing where you actually use the document evidence for evidence on something else. You can use it as a lesson, teaching lesson for other people and stuff. So there's many ways, it, there's many reasons for what, why measuring and documenting can be useful. What I also think that you did very well is talk about saying, you know, it seems as though the measurement and impact that we're talking about is in very micro and local. And there are these population level effects, national effects, um, values that affect. And, and what, how do we measure that and how do we do something about that? And I think that's brilliant. I don't have any, I don't have any idea about it, but I think that that's a really important question. Is that how do we, who is measuring the psyche, the national psyche, the population level psyche of war? And how do we, how do, and that in itself is a measurement, theoretical question, and I think that's brilliant. Um, so I hope that you know, we've somehow acknowledged what, what you've just said and, and sort of recognized that. Uh, like I said, I think that the, the measurement, talking about the measurement of the negative impacts of war and conflict is not a futile thing. It's actually an important thing in many ways. The, the measurement on a population level, I think, is a very theoretically and empirically interesting question. And I think that, that that's absolutely right. And none of this in any way is about complicit in sort of saying, how do we make it less... Uh, less than what it is, we want to do that. So I want to uh, I wanted to say a final thing is that somebody was explaining to me that uh, these these meta conferences have offered a lot in the past. They have been uh, the motivation for working on landmines. They've been a motivation for working on disarmament. They've been a motivation for setting up the student group. And this is one of those things that MEDACT is offering up again, is that the ability to transform that conflict situation in which individuals are passive agents in which violence is happening to them, and to try to use this citizen science uh, model or movement to move that around. So the Arab Spring was a very interesting moment in which people began documenting and publicizing and sharing information in real time what was happening in their lives. Now the question is, can we do something about not only measuring and documenting in present, but say in post-conflict reconstruction 
where rather than just giving things to people, can we get people to become active agents in their community about rebuilding their healthcare system, uh, setting up the research questions, maintaining their, their data, and sort of learning together. That's sort of a new way of thinking about how do we rebuild a, a community and as well as a healthcare system beyond that. But more importantly, we have so much information that we need. And many people who are vulnerable often get lost because we don't have data and they don't have the ability to provide that data. And so this is in terms of conflict and various kinds of vulnerable populations. And we think that this is a, a great way to think about it. So MedAct is offering that up to you and so seeing whether you would be interested in doing anything like that. But does anyone have any pressing before we close, any pressing statement or question that they would like to ask? We have one. Anyone else? So we have one. And two. Hello, thanks for all the contributions. I'm Priscilla Orbison, working at the University of College London. I've been doing social research for decades. And may I very quickly say in half a minute that social research Physical research is so often limited to the evidence, the data. And instead of that, we're thinking about UAs are doing research in four stages. The first, and nearly everybody works at the second stage. Let's look at it, collect evidence, intervene. And that's the level where war occurs. Oh, there's these terrorists, we must go and fight them. That is level two, and it's forgotten level one. Look at the hidden, deep causes. Think about what's really going on, instead of just making assumptions. That then alters level two to entirely different questions and analyses. When you've done that though, <clears throat> and nearly always, um, social researchers don't have the time or the money, and they're not um, encouraged to do this, so they stop short. But level three is to look at the bigger picture, neoliberalism, the climate, and so on, and how it is affecting the small local areas we might have been looking at. And then level four is to think about transformation, change, alternatives, personal and political inner being and difference and our great relationships and how we need to work on so many different levels that we often don't think about and connect. When you've got to level four though, then you can start again at level one and see more deeply the real deep causes. And if only we could step out of this assumption that we must stay in just level two. Brilliant. Hello, I just wanted to take that last opportunity that you offered to just respond on the integration issue and just to share some work that my colleague Alison Strang in Queen Margaret is doing in Scotland. And it is picking up on this idea that just trying to understand, as Mina was referring to, how people themselves understand integration, different perspectives, everybody has a different experience and different expectations. And what was interesting about the work she had done was with the Scottish Refugee Council working with um, refugees and asylum seekers, and basically came up with very, very similar um, understanding that it's social connectedness. It's, it's a number of different dimensions, but particularly really building around people's social connections within the, the society that they're, they're living in. But what's great about that is that also the Scottish government has, you know, basically building on that work has invited her and others to take part in a task force to kind of develop the next stage of it to say, okay, how do we then respond in this current situation and, and crisis people coming in that we can learn from 
this, these approaches, understandings of integration. So I think that's one of the things also we need to always remember in, in MEDACT and all the networks we're involved in. It's that kind of process of research then can be um, you know, possibly taken up and, and lead into policy and lead into different changes and actions. So again, just picking up on what you just said about you know, sharing that across MEDACT, how we basically take this, keeping it on the agenda to potentially changing policy and changing people's attitudes and actions. Cool. All right, so I have two announcements before we finish up. One is that I hope all of you have joined MEDAC now. <laughs> um, it's very simple to do, please do that. Second is that uh, we have a break coming up, dinner break coming up, before we uh, have the exciting speakers to do that. Before I finish, do any of you have anything to say? So can we please uh, be, give a big round of applause? Thank you very much, and we'll see you later as well. Thank you very much. I thought that wasn't too painful. So there's no, uh, everybody's got their flashes and their scan